Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. And it's time for us to talk the visual arts and in particular to talk about a leading Australian artist who very much dislikes giving interviews. So I'm not chatting to him. I'm chatting to Anthony Fitzpatrick, the curator at Tarawara Museum of Art, about the new exhibition, which is just simply called Peter Booth. Anthony, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Richard. Uh, Given... uh, Peter's status as an artist in Australia, somebody who perhaps uh, would be fair to say that his star rose at the same time that the NGV opened. He was one of the exhibiting artists in the the first landmark exhibition at the NGV and continues to fascinate. What is it about Peter Booth as an artist that fascinates you and made you want to curate an exhibition of his work? Uh, Thanks, Richard. Indeed, he has had a remarkable career spanning several decades and produced you know, an expansive body of work that's you know, really integral to the story of Australian art over that period. Um, and you know, the fact that at 82 he continues to get up early every morning and, and paint and continue to you know, produce these extraordinarily potent and compelling paintings and works on paper, um, yeah, it's a, it's a remarkable... Um, Achievement and and his works, you know, are very much as commanding and powerful um, as ever. As as this exhibition highlights, there's several new paintings, a couple from this year, um, that still sort of really resonate. I think with with our contemporary moment, and um, I think you know, over the time, his works have always really been you know powerful responses to to his own perceptions of the, of the world around, as well as sort of you know, that very um, inner sort of subjective realm of the imagination. Um, yeah, so I think, as you mentioned, I think earlier in your program, talking about, uh, you know, the chaotic times that we've been through the last couple of years, I, I think as each year passes and, um, you know, increasingly, you know, un- escalating climate crisis or, you know, the rise of noisy mobs or, um, yeah, I think all of these sort of... Uh, destabilising kind of uncertain times that we're living through uh, are certainly there in his work and um, perhaps, you know, they're becoming even more resonant um, than they were when they, he started out. Yeah. Now, when he started out, if, I'm, if I've got my art history correct, he was more of an abstract artist. And then mm. he almost shocked people when he started presenting figurative work, but he'd been making that mm. kind of figurative work the whole time. He'd been doing the abstract stuff. He just hadn't been showing it. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting story because, yeah, as you said, he he uh, first came to prominence in the late 1960s as a you know a leading proponent of abstract painting, um, very much of its time, very reductive sort of minimal colour field painting, and as you mentioned, alluded to before, is included in that landmark survey that opened the NGV at St Kilda Road, um, the field. Uh, and so over those first six or seven years, yeah, he he produced um, many um, you know abstract works, and but the whole time, um, you know, even even though they're predominantly abstract and non-figurative, you know, there's very much uh, you know a lot of emotional and psychological sort of 
content in the in those paintings and he has alluded to the fact that um you know a lot of those works reflect his state of mind at the time so um but yeah all through that time uh he was drawing and making works on paper and you know the drawings were everything from you know your classic still life subjects through to landscape imagery uh, but they weren't widely exhibited so even though for him you know uh, when he did start painting figurative work um, it was a continuation at, uh, of that practice and it emerged out of this rigorous drawing practice that he had for for you know as ever since he was a young boy when he first had the exhibition at Pinacotheca in 1977 of these you know brooding apocalyptic scenes um, at the end of days kind of imagery um, you know people were really sort of shocked in a way and taken aback and sort of we're wondering where it had all come from. So, um, but since that time, uh, yeah, this highly expressive form of narrative figuration has really, you know, become a hallmark of his practice, and I guess what he's pro- best known for now. And some of that grotesquerie continues on as well. The mm. the, the kind of uh, starkness and bleakness. There's one of the works mm. um, that is showing uh, in the exhibition. I understand, and it kind of. It, it's a collection of, of faces almost like screaming and mm. and mashed together in a way there's uh, as if their individuality is being lost mm. uh, and uh, which a Im- immediately strikes me as a comment on social media uh, but and then the, this kind of blasted desolate landscape behind them and that's a, a more recent work from about 2018 so clearly the some of the the I guess the unsettling currents and and styles of earlier work continue to this day yeah that's right that painting is yeah very powerful it sort of alludes back to some of his work from the early 1980s that feature sort of large crowds of sort of men um sort of looking quite malevolent or menacing or in a state of agitation of some kind and um that particular work i think is really interesting in that it combines uh his um figurative sort of uh, pic- depictions of a crowd of unruly sort of um, figures uh, embedded within us one of his you know snow brooding snowscapes which have been a hallmark of his practice since the late 1980s and yeah it's interesting to hear your comment on uh, about it, um, being social media and I think that's one of the great things about Booth's work is that although you know it's very forceful powerful imagery there's still this um, quality to it that it enables everyone to bring their own subjective response to the work and and you know I've heard other people think about that work in terms of a prison camp or something um, my own thought that first came to mind when I thought about the time it was painted in 2018 was the middle of Donald Trump's presidency and I couldn't help but think of those you know the backdrop to the MAGA rallies of those tears of heads behind him all kind of chanting those um, you know kind of really misogynistic or you know racist kind of um it's the mob yeah that 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 sort of noisy mob and i think you know booth's work has offered uh, over many years a, a critique um you know a social critique and it's sort of sublimated through this sort of grotesque imagery as you as you say and um but i think it's it's always present there and, and really palpable in work such as that Anthony, in terms of curating an exhibition like this, given that you have decades mm. uh, of, of work to choose from, mm. how do you go about selecting the works and, and creating a cohesive, coherent exhibition? Mm, that's a great question because, yeah, he has a ex- very expansive of, you know, as someone who practices every day, he produces, you know, many, many works on paper 
Um, and also the paintings are very large, so, you, you, you know, there's only so many that you can show. And so, a, you know, a kind of comprehensive retrospective wouldn't be possible. Um, so I elected to um, present uh, more of a survey, a thematic survey um, of his practice. So there, there is a, a section at the beginning to just chart that sort of transition from abstraction into figuration to sort of set the stage to so, show where his work, how it emerged out of these powerful gestural abstractions into into these um, yeah figure and landscape subjects. But then from there, uh, I've grouped the works rather than chronologically, thematically. So there's a mixture. There's a section where we explore the works uh, where... Um, Booth, uh, you know, over the years has has painted many different grotesque sort of configurations of hybrid creatures um, or, um, you know, figures who've mutated to adapt to an altered environment. Um, Then there's another um, part that looks at, you know, human sort of folly and and, um, depravity under the spell of some kind of demonic or... um, possession or or influence um quite malevolence um yeah uh images that sort of you know whether where he's exploring the irrational um you know the, these works are very much influenced by you know artists such as goya and uh, who had a decisive impact on on booth um you know during the 1970s uh but then it opens up into the into the main space to look at um works that you know from the 1990s that have Really, these large-scale landscapes where you know the, they're depopulated. There's 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 no human subject present. So we, as a viewer, I guess, become the figure in the landscape, and we're presented with this you know these magnificent sort of expansive images of snow scenes, or um, you know sometimes the snow sh- um, shrouded forests, or sometimes there's a, a, a scene of ruination. You know the aftermath of some kind of uh, catastrophe. And which harkens back to Booth's childhood. It seems mm. like he, again and again there are, there are fundamental mm. uh, moments from his life, uh, a child in Sheffield, at the, the, so witnessing bombing in Sheffield mm. and the destruction and devastation of the city, for example, in, in the UK before coming to Australia. And even a, um, a new work, which I know is in the exhibition, it's a, a screaming figure atop a wall. Mm. And I believe that Peter Booth has actually said he remembers that particular wall from his childhood. So it, it's not as if he's trapped in the past, but it's clearly the there are key elements of his life that he continues to explore through his work. Uh, that's right. And I think that's what's really interesting about the, his practice is that it's not, um, you know, a lot of the work has been discussed in terms of this apocalyptic portent, looking to the future, what might might unfold. But as you, as you say, in fact, a lot of it emerges out of memory. And, and he's talked about, you know how as he's gotten older, you know you have a, you start to think more and more about the past, and so I think that's been a really interesting um, part of his practice. And these snowscapes have emerged out of out of that. And he, I think, in the early nineties, he returned to Sheffield, and it, it sort of triggered these memories of growing up and going for walks in the forest with his brothers, and and you know being in these sort of snow laden landscapes. And so, and but as you alluded to, these sites uh, of ruin and and so forth do hark back to a very formative period in his life where, you know, 
just a few weeks after he was born, in fact, Sheffield was blitzed by, by the Germans um, because of the steel mills there that were producing um, steel for arms manufacturing, um, so they were targeted. So he, he, he grew up, you know, in the aftermath of that and had a, obviously had a huge impact on his family and so forth. So these sort of really set the scene. But also the, the polluted atmosphere of Sheffield, I think, um, once described by Margaret Drabble, who grew up there as a place of gloomy grandeur, and it's you know, in some ways a, a good description of some of Booth's paintings. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so that, that early period of his life continues to inform his work as well. So you have a mixture of, you know, um, subjective sort of memory um, and experience, um, but also him looking at what's going on today and then perhaps, you know, these sort of projecting into a, a potential future as well. Anthony, you mentioned Goya a moment ago. Am I right in thinking that as part of your curation of the exhibition, you've included uh, a small selection of prints by Goya, but also Blake and other artists mm. who have kind of helped inform or shape Booth's practice? That's right, yeah. We were fortunate to uh, be able to secure loans from the National Gallery of Victoria, where Booth actually worked for several years from 69 to 75 and um, in the prints and drawings department. So he had first-hand access to their incredible holdings of prints by you know, William Blake, Samuel Palmer and Francisco Goya. And um, I think they were really pivotal in sort of... Um, not necessarily in terms of the imagery, which is definitely there and you can detect sort of influences, but I think just as examples of artists... In Blake's, uh, in, you know, in terms of William Blake, you know, the visionary, visionary romantic artist who really um, developed this very distinctive worldview and philosophy and outlook, and I think it encouraged, you know, Peter to to sort of be true to his own perceptions and to um, really form, you know, a, a body of work that is distinctively reflective of his own sort of uh, outlook and. Um, but also an art of great emotional intensity, and the same with Goya, who was, you know, an artist who, you know, was unflinching in his portrayal through, you know, grotesque or diabolical or fantastic imagery of, you know, the, what he perceived to be some of the follies and um, of of um, Spanish society, you know, contemporary Spanish society at the time. So I think that they not only, you know, gave him, you know, sort of great inspiration in terms of their imagery, but as examples of their sort of overall practice and positioning, I think were really um, important precursors in many ways. If we're talking about the more recent works by Peter Booth that are also in the exhibition, one of them feels a little different. It looks kind of more hopeful, more mm. positive. It's hinting at the regenerative power of the earth, for example. So instead of a blasted landscape, mm. uh, this 2022 painting is is of a forest. There's uh, kind of leaves and in, and uh, an insect. So there's still a hint of the grotesque with the the insect and the the bulbous nature of the trees, and they could almost be prehistoric rather than uh, a thriving forest today. Yeah, I think it's a really fascinating aspect of Booth's practice um, and. Yeah, you're right. They um, provide a powerful counterpoint to those sort of snowscapes and the sort of more sombre mood of those because the colour's much more high-keyed, um, you know, these lush greens and reds and pinks even. Um, and, yeah, they emer first emerged in the 1990s. And, um, yeah, again, I think at the time, 
critics were a bit taken aback because, you know, dare I say it, they actually perhaps offered a glimmer of hope <laughs> um, for an artist notorious for perhaps more bleak and pessimistic sort of um, portrayals. But um, he actually refers to these paintings as his Garden of Eden paintings. So I think you're right in sort of um, seeing that sort of prehistoric or primordial sort of aspect to them. But they do have that still that uncanny aspect to, to them. But uh, I think in calling them his Garden of Eden paintings, he's, he's sort of referring, I guess, to a pre-lapsarian or a pre human perhaps um, period where nature was able to sort of have this growth and fecundity and to, to sort of, um, uh, you know, proliferate without the, the you know, intervention of, of humans. But, um, but I think it also reflects his... Um, he's always had a personal reverence for nature and really, um, you know, and he believes that, you know, as humans we're organic entities just like everything else. We're part of, you know, this you know, uh, a, an ecology and, um, you know, often a lot of his hybrid figures speak to that as well where, where you know, in some way connected to all these other non-human life forms. So they're not just sort of um, sort of nostalgic ruminations on what the past might have looked, la- looked like but they're also, you know, an expression of his um, real um, empathy for and and fascination with the sort of forces the generative forces of the natural world so there's um yeah so there's a a brand new painting with that insect in it which is um really a continuation of this series that um so I've, i've hung those on a wall uh the length of one wall of the gallery opposite the snow paintings to create create this really great sense of contrast between these two different um perspectives on on the landscape and the natural world Anthony, Peter Booth is clearly an artist whose work intrigues you and fascinates you. You've written uh, what, uh, an accompanying uh, essay catalogue mm-hmm. for the exhibition? That's right. Uh, I've written a quite long uh, piece for, for the catalogue, which will um, be coming out next week, and I uh, also uh, commissioned Kirsty Grant, who, um, uh, yeah, an independent curator formerly from Heidi and NGV, who's written about Peter's early period, um, where documenting that period for, for, for where he emerged from abstraction into figuration as well. So, um, yeah, r- lots of illustrations of all the works in the show. And um, importantly, too, I've also included a number of works on paper. Um, uh, one one uh, display case is full of about 30 or 40 small-scale works from just from the last two years of um, Peter, just to kind of give a window into his studio practice at any one point in time and... and, and in doing that, it's sort of because I've grouped the works thematically through the exhibition, in this case, all the works jumbled together. So you've got a few sort of studies of tangled vines or a humble housefly or uh, alongside some of the roads, which are you know, a hallmark of his work, alongside some grotesque figures. So they're all kind of jumbled together to show that, you know, he's not necessarily going, oh, I'm going to do this sort of style for a while and, and move to this. He's constantly sort of whatever takes him at the time he's um they're much more spontaneous i think and 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 um he talks about you know this exploratory nature of his practice through works on paper a lot of the kind of energy that a painting can have is in his words sussed out in works on paper beforehand so yeah i think they're really important in that they give a insight into that creative process and um and and the energy and the and the um you know the profuseness of his practice. Peter Booth is showing until the 13th of March at Tarawari Museum of Art, 313 Hillsville Yarra Glen Road, 
just outside of Healesville itself. You can find more info uh, at www.twma.com.au. That's twma.com.au. Tarawara Museum of Art is open Tuesdays till Sundays, 11am till 5pm, and all public holidays except Christmas Day, and then uh, open seven days a week from Boxing Day until the end of January. Tarawara Museum of Art, where you can see Peter Booth, curated by Anthony Fitzpatrick. Anthony, thank you for joining us. Uh, you suggested that we end with a song. What's the connection between this Nick Cave track that we're about to hear and the Peter Booth exhibition? Well, there's a couple, but um, I actually titled one of the, the headings in my essay after this song, Up Jumped the Devil. Um, I think there's actually a painting in the show called Painting 1981, which actually, you know, it, it's a good actual description of the painting. Um, but I do know that Peter Booth... Uh, sorry, Nick Cave is a fan of Peter Booth as well, and they, they have met in the past. Um, the photographer, Ross A. Waterman, has, um, has got them together. And, uh, yeah, there's, um, uh, I think... Both of them sort of have a, a great connection to St Kilda as well. So, yeah, I, I could elaborate a lot more. But, um, yeah, I think this is yeah, a really apt painting to capture a sense of some of the works that Peter painted in the, in the early 80s. Triple R. Now, one of the things that I love about art, all kinds of art, theatre, cinema, writing of different forms, both fiction and non-fiction, is that sometimes when you focus on something specific, it becomes a lens through which to explore something far more universal. And that's certainly the case with the new book, Staging a Revolution, When Betty Rocked the Pram, by Kath Kenny, which looks at a 1972 production at the fabled Pram Factory Theatre in Melbourne, uh, a work called Betty Can Jump, devised by a group of women, a piece of feminist theatre that was significant in its time. And Kath is using, has used that story to explore uh, a range of contemporary feminist themes as well uh, as documenting the, the play itself. Kath, welcome to Triple R. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Richard. It's great to be here. Let's start with just a little bit of background. Some people will be familiar with, I guess, the legend of the Pram Factory, but for people who are unfamiliar with it as a theatre and as a, uh, a, a home of an artistic movement in the 70s, give us a, a brief rundown on what the Pram Factory was uh, and why, in particular, Betty Can Jump was an important production at the theatre. Right. Well, when I first started researching this story, my idea of the Pram Factory was this building um, on Drummond Street, and it was in the 1970s, at the beginning of the 1970s, um, a group moved in, and I thought it was all David Williamson and Ocker plays like Don's Party and people like Bruce Spence um, and Max Gilly, but... When I started researching the story, I found that there were all these incredible women at the Pram Factory too, doing some, in some ways, even more, much more interesting work. Um, they started a women's theatre movement, and it, although Helen Garner wasn't part of the theatre group that was at the Pram Factory, the Australian Performing Group, she was a central part of this play. 
the play itself uh, was revolutionary in its time and indeed used revolutionary tactics in terms of uh, the the agitprop street theatre, for example, that was being used in the 70s. It used elements like that. It uh, was a devised work drawing on the individual experiences of the women involved. It was a staunchly feminist work at a time when, I guess, the, what the second wave of feminism was only really starting to impact. And so it shocked the men of the APG, for example. Here were women swearing on stage, talking uh, uh, about their lives in a way which was very confronting at the time. It feels like a landmark work as a play, Betty Can Jump, which to a degree has been or had been forgotten. Yeah, definitely. It has been forgotten. Um, you've got to remember, at that point in time, in the early 1970s, it was this, it was a really revolutionary time where you know women and the men at the Pram Factory were running through moratorium marches. They were at the front of moratorium marches, dressed as Viet Cong, um, acting out um, street theatre to get people to draw attention to the issues. They were um, in the front lines of the abortion movement in Helen Garner's case. But it was also a time when women still couldn't go into public bars and they couldn't um, easily get abortions. There was no women in the House of Representatives. So the women at the Perm Factory, they were so strong, but they were really fed up with the sort of Ocker characters. So, yeah, they did get up on stage and they acted out being... Ocker men in a bar harassing and abusing women. Um, and they talked um, in one scene in the dark about these really intimate things about their bodies and um, rape and all these things that they hadn't been told. They were just starting to discover themselves. And at that time, it was um, not long after the group had been at La Mama and uh, actors and directors had been arrested for obscenity. So... It was quite brave of them, and it was um, it was brave of them to say to the men in the group, look, we're sick of, of you dominating these stories. We're trying to tell Australian stories, but you're leaving this out. In terms of the, the play itself, how did you first discover, uh, or he, sorry, how did you first hear about Betty Can Jump? Right. Well, I, I was at the beginning of a... PhD um, in 2016, and I was starting to look at this, um, how women in the media and feminism was having a resurgence and women were telling their personal stories. Um, it seemed almost everywhere you turned. And I thought about that second wave phrase, the personal is political. So I wanted to look at the origins of it, and I started looking at consciousness-raising groups in the early women's liberation movement. And at the same time, Bernadette Brennan, who was Helen Garner's literary biographer, had devoted a couple of pages in her book to Helen's involvement in the play. And it was the first time she'd written for the public. It was the first time she'd been on stage, too. And um, I thought, that sounds really interesting. And I got really lucky. I discovered the um, director, who was still around and living in Sydney, Carrie Dwyer, I contacted her and she said, oh, yeah, I've got all my diaries and archives and interviews that I um, kept at the time and they're now at the State Libraries in South Wales. So I went there and found this incredible sort of story of how they made the play and how they were feeling at the time. And 
one of the things that's intriguing about Betty Can Jump as a play, that it it may have been filmed, but nobody knows where where uh, the the film is. If that was indeed the case, uh, mm. and so apart from like in one way, it feels like you were reconstructing the play and then its impact. Uh, from the memories of the people who were in it or who saw it. But then it's, what, about halfway through the book, you discover, you, you write how you actually found a copy of the script. That must have been a, a pretty remarkable moment for you. Oh, yeah. It was one of those sort of, um, along with finding their diaries, a spine-tingling moment in the archives, which people might think of as really dull. And, but there were these sort of... Um, handwritten notes in the play about, um, in, in the script about, um, you know, Helen being like the mind of the group and Jude Curring, one of the other actors who went on to be in um, Starring Prisoner, uh, was sort of like the stable base and Evelyn Crape, who's now a well-known stage actress, would sort of improvise and riff off another of the actors, Yvonne Marini. So I found all these sort of um, character descriptions of what they were like and how they were freaking out about men um, coming into the rehearsal room and, and it's just this moment of them discovering themselves and really sort of going deep into talking about their lives with each other in a way that they hadn't before. Uh, One of the things that intrigues me, as I said at the start, uh, when I was introducing is, is the, the way that by focusing on a play, you've been able to uh, tell a story of uh, feminism in Australia at the time. You've been able to compare that to contemporary feminism. As you were writing the book, uh, the Me Too movement was happening. Uh, you've been able to talk about the culture of forgetting in Australia, certainly. You've been able to reference that. Uh, and that's something that... Uh, uh, Australian culture generally is really good at forgetting the past or airbrushing out the bits that they feel uncomfortable about. And Australian theatre in particular seems to forget the past and so reinvents the wheel every couple of decades. It feels like feminism is doing that to a degree as well, and you touch on that in the book too. Talk to us about that aspect of the book. Yeah, totally. I think that um, one of the, the problems, there's really two two big problems about the forgetting of feminist theatre is that women's history isn't well told and ephemeral sort of moments like theatre aren't remembered um, in the same way that, say, a book like Dan Hall's and God's Police or The Female Eunuch has been... They've never been out of print. They've been able to circulate. But um, that moment in 1972, three years before uh, Anne Summers' book, came out, they were talking about this sort of saint and whore dichotomy that Anne Summers hit on in her book and wrote, um, that was released three years later um, about the women in Australian history being categorised as either a whore or a saint. And I also found these other sort of interesting parallels with the Me Too movement. Uh, starting about a year or two into my research, and there were these women from film and theatre at the front of that movement. And I thought, that's interesting, because you don't think of, of feminism, feminist movements as being led by you know, actors and, and cinema makers, but, in fact, it was a huge part of what they call the cultural renaissance of second-wave feminism. There were people making... Uh, women making films, particularly in Sydney and 
Betty Can Jump led to this incredible theatre movement um, and a group called the Melbourne Women's Theatre Group started up at the Brown Factory a couple of years later. Um, but that, and, and there were women's plays almost every night of the week by the end of the late 1970s. But what I um, found really interesting is that by 2009, we were almost back in the same situation that the women of Betty Can Jump were facing, where they felt that theatre was being dominated by men and men's stories. And at the opening uh, announcement of Neil Armfield's Belvoir season in 2009, a, um, a theatre practitioner called Joanna Erskine was at the launch noticing there were 12 men and there was, I think, one woman on stage um, for the next season. And that became this huge story where, where theatre said, hang on, what... Where um, and a lot of women in Australian theatre were saying, "Where are we?" and led to um, what I think is now, in the last few years, this is another renaissance of women's theatre. Um, I was reviewing plays a couple of years ago, and I could see a women's show again almost every night of the week. You also talk about the uh, generational conflict between the feminists of the 70s uh, and the feminists of today, for example. Um, and that is, uh, uh, has, was act is actually quite personal for you, in a way, given uh, kind of you had at one stage an antagonistic relationship with Helen Garner uh, and then later meeting with her, what, kind of... Uh, Talk to us about the, that, the fact that there was the friction uh, of your early kind of engagements versus uh, the what are, are coming together more recently. Yeah. Yeah, so when I was um, a young university student um, in the 90s, uh, Helen Garner was writing a book which became The First Stone, and um, it was about a sexual harassment um, case at Ormond College, the residential college, and I was an editor of the student paper at the time, and um, we believed the women's stories, you know, like we say now, believe women, well, we at least believed that they needed to be heard and that they needed to be dealt with, and we felt like that the college was shutting it down, and Helen Garner wrote a book, which before I actually read the book, I read a couple of um, media stories in the Australian and Sydney Morning Herald and Age feature articles that, that um, framed it as, at this uh, big generational battle. And Helen Garner's book does sort of frame it that way a little bit too. But it wasn't... Uh, well, I do think sometimes this feminist um, generational battle is a media construction. So we see um, sort of... The media um, constructs generations of feminism with you know, Jermaine Greer on one side and trans-inclusive feminists on the other side. And I actually think that that's, that's not necessarily um, the reality of feminist movements on the ground. There are feminists of all generations fighting on the same issues and there are differences between feminists, but it, um, it's not always along generational lines. And I think it's exaggerated. So I was thinking of all those things when I was researching Betty Can Jump and um, I'd remembered when the first stone came out, after it came out, Helen Garner had called me because I'd written a few pieces in the paper and said, let's have a cup of tea and talk. And we did have a, um, a friendly cup of tea, but we didn't really understand each other. And I thought when I started to write 
staging a revolution, I would call her. And um, we had this really interesting discussion where we didn't agree on everything, but we had a dialogue about, you know, what feminism meant for her, what it meant for me, and I learned more about some of those early struggles that she had on the front line, and also about their their feminism originating in a, a real sexual libertarianism at the pram factory and um, as part of the sexual revolution. So it kind of changed my understanding too of uh, of where that generation or some people in that generation were coming from. Kath Kenny is the author of Staging a Revolution When Betty Rocked the Pram, uh, which is... Among, looking at, yes, uh, a 1972 theatre production, Betty Can Jump, and its impact on the society of the day and the way that impact continues to be felt today, the influence of the play and so much more. Uh, there's a, a, a note in the book, Kath, where you say that... Um, uh, talking to Helen Garner, what do you make of us all... Do we seem like we were all a little bit mad, Helen says. And you respond by saying, I have to fight against romanticising those years. Talk to us about the struggle not to romanticise the, the, the Melbourne of 1972, moratorium marches, second wave feminism and radical theatre at the Pram Factory. Yeah, uh, look, it's, I do struggle because in some ways it really does seem like it was such a golden age. There were... Um, all these sort of radicals and anarchists living at the plan factory. Um, at one point, they bashed a hole between the tower residence where they lived and the offices and theatre next door. They um, seemed to be just doing things like practising the street theatre in the morning and rehearsing in the afternoon. Rent was really cheap. They um, would have breakfast every morning in um, what we now call... Tiamo and um, drink at the Albion at night, which, was, which is now a women's fashion store opposite La Mama. It just seems like uh, these like crazy sort of exercises in acting workshops where they sort of face a wall and try to throw their thoughts backwards or they'd be tripping on acid. And it, it sort of does seem like this incredible world where they... Um, you know, or it seemed to have money to do things. Like the people at Tower lived rent-free, that some of the actors or the um, everyone actually had to do everything at the plant factory could be paid a weekly wage because it was the beginning of the Australia Council and they got grants. But you've got to also remember there was, um, for women, it wasn't um, an, an easy time because there were two separate columns in the paper for jobs for men and women. Um, for if you were gay, a lot of people at the Pram Factory weren't out. Um, later on, heroin came into the um, scene. And one of the reasons they could do that was because that was really before Carlton and that world had been gentrified, before, um, you know, the great middle class had gone through universities that stayed there. They could live cheaply. They could... Um, Helen was able to live on the supporting mother's benefit once the Whitlam government got in and write monkey groups. So um, it was a great age of possibility and a belief in, in the world changing, but there was also this, you know, like any time, dark undercurrent of, um, 
of that time. Staging a Revolution, When Betty Rocked the Pram, is published by Upswell Publishing. It's a paperback. Uh, it retails for twenty nine ninety nine, and you should be able to find copies of it in good independent bookstores here in Melbourne or possibly even bad commercial bookstores. I don't know. Um, but uh, go to upswellpublishing.com if you would like to order a copy of Staging a Revolution, When Betty Rocked the Pram by Kath Kenny. Kath, thanks so much for speaking to us today. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Where to talk visual art, and I'm joined in the studio by my final guest for the morning. Chelsea Hopper uh, runs 99% Gallery in the Nicholas Building, part of a creative hive in that building. Uh, we've heard a little bit quite... Well, I, I, we've certainly heard a bit about the, the Nicholas Building on Triple R this year. I know I've done a couple of conversations about it, but Chelsea, welcome to the station. Thanks for having me. Um, and before we talk about 99% Gallery and the general public, given that the campaign to save the Nicholas Building has been in the public eye and people are talking about it, for you as part of that vertical village of creatives. Tell us a little bit about what it feels like to run a gallery in the Nicholas Building. Well, it's uh, it's great because you don't... You get, um, you know, complete strangers and people who are lost, which I love. So you get stragglers from high school who have skipped school and they've just taken a bus into the city and they're exploring. So it's a really great building to just find things and uh, I'm lucky because the the gallery is near the lift so I always can hear people through the fire door <laughs> try and yeah uh, peer in and and then they eventually come come into the gallery but yeah there's there's a lot of there's a total mix of people that you you meet and interact with. How did you find the space for the gallery? I just asked. I emailed the real estate agents and I uh, it was the only one that was a reasonable size uh, and had a nice view and uh, was kind of affordable for what I wanted to do. And opened in February this year. It did, yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that fascinates me about Melbourne's visual arts culture is it feels like it's in a really healthy state, for starters, despite the challenges mm. of the pandemic. Um, and the, the mix of um, commercial galleries, contemporary art spaces, artist-run spaces, state institutions, and the, the conversation that, that happens between them, it, it feels really vital and, and kind of really, kind of uh, I guess, active and... and uh, yeah, I don't know, there's a vibe at the moment, perhaps. There's so many new spaces that have opened. Yes, there is a total vibe. Uh, <laughs> it's it's lovely, especially in the Nicholas Building. There are about ten galleries, so it's it's really great. You know, you can start at level nine and kind of work your way down. And but there there's lots of different types of galleries in the building, along with you know commercial galleries and ARIs that are in the city and in the suburbs. And then you have um, a handful of backyard galleries, so sheds turned into galleries, which has become a thing um, post-COVID uh, or post-pandemic. So 
The current show at 99% Gallery is called The General Public. Now, this is an exhibition that the minute I heard about it, I was completely kind of fascinated and intrigued because you put out uh, a call for art, uh, for, for artists to, su- to submit work. Normally when that happens, it's, it's very focused. It's on I, this contemporary art practice or a group of sculptors mm-hmm. or, or something. Uh, but you put out a, a call for work across the art world, but also from the general public as well. So from people who may not consider themselves artists in inverted commas uh, and, and talk about their professional practice, people who do it for love. So you must have mm. got a huge <laughs> range of work being submitted. Yes, I it was quite it was quite extraordinary. I I had so about 185 people came over 3 days and yeah, I had a someone submitted their rock collection. Uh someone submitted a kind of a large life-size portrait of a tiger kind of bursting out of the water. Um I had yeah, relatively established artists um, submit work, but out of the 200 people in the show, I I met yeah 180 of them who I'd never seen before or never yeah seen their work ever in my life. So it was very generative in that way. Why did you want to stage a, an exhibition like this that was open to all, was unrestricted, open access? What was your rationale behind this? Well, I'm interested in the term the general public, which is it, it references um, the ways museums and art institutions characterize and position an audience. So they say things like, would the general public understand X? So like while museums like do apply kind of segmentation to audiences, um, it's used as like a binary for specialists or el- elitists. Yeah, and and oppositional. It's us versus the general public. Totally, yes, and that's. Uh, I wanted to uh, be as open as possible to the open call kind of structure of an exhibition like that, and really push how uh, push that limit, like push uh, the limitlessness of only having those two requirements to submit work and to to break down that binary. Yeah, completely, and look. Look at um, how inclusion can be an, an an exclusive thing as well. I mean, I didn't have the biggest marketing t- team <laughs> behind me, and so it was interesting to see how far you can really reach um, with you know just me and social media and an email list, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because yeah. I was going to ask, how did you get the call out to people? Because obviously uh, social media in some ways, particularly Facebook, uh, is narrow casting rather than broadcasting. It's focusing a particular targeted audience, often if you're paying for ads or you're just speaking to the people who you're Facebook friends with or who follow you, for example. So to, to try to get be, – even though social media can be great, it still limits who you talk to. Um, how did you reach beyond those the, I guess, the, the bubble of your own social media world? Well, I tried to uh, – yeah, I tried to just do a word of mouth. So every time I went to an opening or um, – if I met someone new, I would tell them you should you should submit something or 
you should come to the gallery and it'd be nice if you, you know, you can, you can be in the show at the end of the year. So it was a kind of a long game from the beginning of when I opened the exhibition of trying to get people to at least come to the gallery first and then, yeah, feel like they're welcome to submit and be a part of the show and the gallery and yeah. the resulting exhibition then, you've said, what, something like 200 people have submitted work mm-hmm. uh, and it's all kind of in together. So, mm-hmm. again, you, you've not curated it in a way to try to f- say here is, I don't know, here is the the professional art, here is the, the naive work, here yes. is what's, what else is in between. You kind of, again, you're you're looking at a, at a communal whole. Totally, yes. It, I mean, it is curated. Like, I have <laughs> made decisions. I mean, curating, in a nutshell, I think, is selecting and sequencing things. So you're putting things in an order and you're, yeah, trying to make sense of, of how how everything will sit on the wall together. How it will talk to itself. Yeah, yeah. totally. How it works will talk to the, with, with the work next to them or, or yeah, the one after that. Yeah, and then the thing of being try, trying to be as democratic as possible. So it's this idea of, like, trying to make the grass as important as the cow. It's like um, you don't want to privilege anyone because everyone is in the show, right? And it's not about one particular artist. It's about everyone in the show. Talk to us about some of the works. You've already mentioned some, yeah. like the, the life-size tiger <laughs> leaping out of water, for example. Talk to us about some of the other works that people will see if they come along to 99% Gallery in the Nicholas Building to see the exhibition, The General Public. Yeah, there's a lot of painting. There's some jewellery. There's a banjo. Uh, there's some soft sculpture. There's uh, a plant uh, near the window, which is quite nice to see it grow. There's some potatoes in <laughs> a uh, also next to the window that are growing together, um, some old potatoes. Uh, there's some photography, some je- silver gelatin prints. Um, gosh, there's, there's a lot. There's a, vi- a video work, which is – there's one video work, and it's the, one of my favourite works. Um, it's basically an iPad in a makeshift frame playing um, Philomena Kunk, which is like this BBC series, and it's, a, it's this woman who interviews all these experts about uh, the world, and she asks these kind of absurd, silly questions. Yeah. There's, there's a lot. <laughs> and, again, it's – the um, I, you've already mentioned the rocks, for example, and I sure. love the fact that somebody bought kind of along rocks. There's also apparently a lot of uh, pink acrylic paint. Yes, there <laughs> there is a lot of pink acrylic paint. That that was strange. Like the first kind of fifty works, a lot of them were pink um, or pastels, and there is sort of like a section which is I call like the domestic. Um, kind of soft section which is on the left and yeah I don't know why that is it just seems to be I mean it's an appealing color I guess to the people um and yeah it's I guess evident in like the work yeah and as you said a lot of painting yeah yes which and one of the things that delights me about the idea of this exhibition Chelsea is the Mm. That it will remind people about making art for pleasure, that 
having a creative practice doesn't have to be about a career and trying to be successful and working, uh, which is the world of the professional artist, so to speak. Mm -hmm. It's a reminder that we can all have a creative practice and we can take joy from it. And in my case, it doesn't matter if I'm a bit shit at drawing, if I'm still enjoying <laughs> the process and taking myself out of the everyday and getting lost in a creative exercise for, for half an hour or however long it may be, that this enorm that's the real value of art. It's not the value of the frame on the wall and how much it sells for. No. It's the delight and the joy that we have making and creating and the delight and joy people will have coming to view the general public exhibition. Yes, completely. I think what was really like moving for me as the person who yeah, offered this to to everyone was a lot of people who are in the general public, they'd never been in an exhibition before and they'd also never been to the gallery before, so for me that was really special um to allow them that opportunity and also it's f it's for everyone so it didn't matter yeah if you were famous or not or if you if you submitted something that you drew yesterday or you'd been you know holding on to it for a couple of years and you just really wanted everyone to see <laughs> finally I kind of wish I'd been there on the day that people turned up with their work you should have come yeah <laughs> For, what was it like to meet people, to, to welcome them into the space and to say you are going to be part of something big and something rather special? It was quite intense uh, just because of the amount of people who came, especially on the last day there were about 75 people who came, so that was pretty... Um, I, yeah. would, I would have been one of them <laughs> leaving it to the last minute. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, it was, again, yeah, I felt very, like, moved. It was very special to me um yeah just to have yeah again like out of the 180 people I knew 20 of 200 people I knew 20 of them so I, I met like all these new people and all these artists that had yeah had um who were really excited to to be on display and to be seen and it I guess shows you that there is such a, a wider um community of artists that don't get an opportunity to um, be on display in this way. The yeah. exhibition is called The General Public, uh, curated by Chelsea Hooper, who runs 99% Gallery, located uh, on uh, Level 7, Room 3 of the Nicholas Building at 37 Swanston Street. And you can go to 99%, that's the numerals, 99, the word percent.gallery, for more info, Chelsea, how long is the general public showing for? It's open till December 10th, so next Saturday is okay. the last day. And opening hours? 12 to 5 p.m. Yeah. For more info, as I said, 99%.gallery to check out the general public. Chelsea Hopper, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.